Voices of Hope is a podcast of New Hope Presbyterian Church of Castle Rock, Colorado. New Hope is a church that puts people first. You can listen to our sermons and podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and any other popular podcast platforms. This sermon from Sunday, October 9th, explores the Exodus story of the Israelites fleeing Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, and the dancing of Miriam. I remember the dancing when I woke up. It was when I knew we were us. I remember her moving, the flowing of her dress. I remember the joy, the victory, the intensity of her movement. I remember the anger, the rage, the relief at justice. I remember her ecstasy at being free and the way her scarf fell off her head and the way her hair came over her shoulders when I woke up, when I saw the sadness of the tale her dance was telling and the grief and the loss and the fear and the excitement and the mud on her feet, on her shins, on her legs. And suddenly I knew nothing would ever be the same again. Find a Bible in front of you in your pew if you would. I want you to turn to Exodus 15. Uh, If it's your pew Bible, it looks like I'm on page 111. We're celebrating a beginning today that is, if you've been paying attention, I've been steering towards for five weeks now, the start. When we became we, when we woke up, to what God was doing in our lives. Exodus 15, verse 21, if you look on the right-hand side of that page, the right-hand column, uh, verse 21. Actually, let me go back to verse 20, bottom left of that page, 15, 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, And all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And now, listen carefully to the oldest part of our Bible. Nothing precedes this. This is the hard, non-intuitive section of today's sermon that we start here when Miriam sang. Sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. That's it. That celebration dance, that declaration is the oldest part of this ancient book in front of you. Scan, if you would, chapter 15, which you see is offset in poetry. 
Poetry is even back then, 3,000 years ago, how we memorize things, how we put stories in not prose, but rhyme schemes to make it more memorable, more celebrative, more translatable to bring forward in, in worship. Look at the start of chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And then it keeps on going. When you're a Bible scholar and you've got two competing phrases, uh, the shorter version is to be preferred. <laughs> that's just a rule. That's also a rule in preaching, by the way. In this case, it's because with holy texts, we tend not to excise and cut things out. We're too anxious about that. We tend to add to round out, to try to explain. The shorter reading is the more authentic. Here's something really peculiar that would never happen today where a man takes a woman's song, adds some verses to it, and claims it as his own. All of chapter 15 is a reiteration, some more details about what Miriam sang, what the women danced when we woke up with our feet still wet, tears still running down our cheeks. Uh, the story this morning of uh, the song. We're making our way through Exodus, and I began us at the start of Sept uh, with Labor Day and New Beginnings and some pieces about Moses and drawing out of the water, uh, Jordan preaching about that great burning bush awareness and new spiritual opening that also sends us out. And a little piece about Pharaoh and hardening hearts and how sometimes God may want you and me also uh, to toughen up a little bit. Uh, and then last week, talking about this uh, Passover, this 10th horrible plague, the killing of the firstborn that's reiterated uh, at the crucifixion uh, with the same plant, the same passing over, the same setting us apart, protecting us. Um, in the middle of this really awkward, hard story out of Exodus. I'm giving you some criticism as how I preach. It's maybe a little more academic than you're accustomed to. Uh, it's historical criticism. It's textual criticism asking about what happened then. What do we discern from the text that shows us? By the way, uh, starting in a couple weeks, I'm going to do a Bible study, uh, 10.45 to 11.30 for a few weeks on uh, how do we even get here? I want to look, now that we're at the end of Exodus, I want to do some teaching in Scripture and explaining. It's called the emergence of Israel. I know you have one story in your head. I believe it's wrong, wrong-headed, not terribly biblical, and deeply damaging and dangerous. I want to offer something else. It'll be somewhat new to you. You've got uh, two pastors in Jordan uh, and Russ both who are good scholars and academics who come because from different schools we have different preferences, different times, different teachings. So what I present to you, what I've given my career to, will be very familiar in some ways and very new in others. Uh, join us, if you would, for a first round of Bible uh, studying together, celebrating our stories. And then, of course, what I was pointing out last week in the Passover of Exodus telling stories in chapter fashion, narrative, here's what goes on. And when we got to the Passover, um, it changed to a recipe book and said, when you're preparing Passover, 
take your bread this way, take your meat this way. And then almost as an afterthought, there's an explanation of, and the spirit of the Lord came over and the firstborn of the land died. It's a real flag of how uh, our storytelling shapes us. And in this case, our festivals and what we celebrate Sunday mornings and on Passover shapes who we are, shapes the story we continue to tell. Uh, starting next week, we're going to be preaching uh, on the power of stories. And starting next week, uh, you'll be exposed to some wonderful stories of new hope uh, and faith. Um, so be ready for that, because even in Scripture, we understand um, the importance of retelling who we are. Uh, what God has done. The story we tell of crucifixion uh, will save for Lent, um, but in the same way, we'll do the good, hard Bible work that helps shape us and helps form uh, the stories we tell because those stories shape our faith and who people see us as. And it really matters. This is not merely an academic exercise, but to do it well, it needs at some level initially to be an academic uh, exercise. All right. What I think happened was we opened our eyes and Miriam's dancing and we're relieved and sad and traumatized, scared, rejoicing in God's uh, power, afraid of God's power that we'd just seen at Passover. And that's the moment that defines us. That's where we really start. That's where we say, who are you? And we hear, well, as a matter of fact, they're part of our tribe too. Who are you? Not part of our tribe. A friend of our tribe who's glad to be rid of Pharaoh too and is asking us, how did we get here? Where are we going next? Tell me more about your God who liberates, who frees. And that's how our tribe began and grew uh, under the awful thumb and escaping the awful thumb. Um... What follows that event, uh, here's, a, here's a timeline of it. What follows that event in about 1200 BCE is asking more deeply, tell me more about your family. Tell me more about how you got trapped in Pharaoh. And for some of us, we hear stories of the patriarchs and how long they'd been in Egypt. Others of us are along for the ride. Others of us are along because we want to be free too. Others of us are along because we want to find out what they know about how to make sense of life in this God who is the great liberator. None of this gets written down until about a thousand, all right, under the court of King David. This is a little preview, frankly, of what we'll be looking at in Bible study is how did we get from this band of rebels celebrating liberation who later want to tell a deeper story and put a background in that we call the book of Genesis. Um, you and I aren't going to get much of a chance to study Genesis, which is a shame. But this is where we are as we make our way uh, forward in the coming weeks. So, here's a text, Temporary Shepherds. It's a text that the Presbytery likes us to study. I did my uh, 60 hours between the fall and spring of last year on interim training. And we had to read a handful of texts. This is one of them especially that our presbytery uh, chooses to make sure we know about as transitional or interim pastors. And there's five tasks they like us to talk about or to be familiar with. Um, even as we proceed apace with our pastor nominating committee, more on that after worship. 
is uh, commitments to new directions in ministry. This will be, I suspect, not more clear until after Christmas, till in the spring, uh, when we're thinking of, are there shifts amongst us? Are there ideas that have percolated up through us and through the PNC as we start looking for a new pastor that we want to make sure uh, we prioritize as we look at a road ahead? This is, a, I don't think, a difficult piece for us, but many churches have a hard relationship with Presbytery. And they have some either bad past experiences or some fear. And so one thing they like us interims to do is make sure the church is feeling okay about Denver Presbytery. I get, I get even in my five weeks here, I get good stories, good vibes, a good clear relationship with, and that's not terribly common, with Committee on Ministry through Annalie Noble, et cetera, our liaison uh, who's with us to help this PNC process go smoothly. Um, so I'm not worried about this at all. I try to include stories about the Presbytery and my past church in Genesis and Littleton, et cetera. So we have a continuing ongoing awareness that however preoccupied with our own stuff we are, we're not alone, right? We got lots of people going on uh, for us, praying for us even this morning. We were talking at session yesterday, uh, what happens when a pastor leaves is there's a vacuum of uh, power. And in that vacuum, wonderful and sometimes strange things happen. Um, people get an opportunity to change their role with the church, get a chance to step in where maybe they haven't before because there's a new need or an opportunity to drop something because it was what Russ did or someone else did. And you know what? Let it go. Um, that frees up people to be leaders in new ways. It's a great opportunity. We don't want to miss it. And then this, uh, this is going to take some more work, but luckily you guys already did it. Um, last fall, you spent considerable time, I don't know how much life this actually has in the congregation. I do know that there was a number of nodding heads yesterday at session, that's always a good sign, uh, of some new directions and commitments to ministry, some awareness of what it took to get through COVID and how to shape new hope and our intention for being new hope beyond these doors. Great stuff. It's a mission study, a mission statement, rather, uh, for how to proceed. We're going to be revisiting that and bringing it more to the fore because there's no point in recreating the wheel. This community of faith has done some serious, deep thinking already uh, about how to be who we are, what our priorities are. Really helpful uh, for a transitional pastor um, to pull that out again. And then, of course, the first thing they ask us to do is come to grips with our history, that's so we don't have any surprises. That's so we can all feel on a similar page. This is actually what uh, the Q&A is about after worship today as much as anything. As naming what is, uh, repeating what you maybe already heard, or repeating and again what is new to you. Uh, so that we can be together as a body of Christ doing honor to all the work that's been done ahead of us. Um, doing well uh, to hard work and a lot of years of good ministry. <laughs> so let's see I, I love it I love it just the picture does it um, Russ and I were not friends Russ and I were acquaintances uh, we sat across from the table a number of times in Presbyterian meetings and committee on ministry and visioning things oh, we knew each other and would greet each other but knew nothing about each other's wives or lives or kids knew more about each other's churches because of similar connections through Presbytery uh, etc um, all I knew of him was what I heard others say a man of integrity and, and good faith 
Um, and I always experienced him as a joyous man as well. And I should say this, a man with more patience than I for meetings. <laughs> and that's a, I don't know, is that a spiritual gift, patience for meetings? Uh, if it is, uh, I missed that day. Um, and Russ was great at it um, at every level. Of the two or three conversations I ever had with Russ Kane, um, I kid you not, one of them was about sweater vests. I bring this up because you guys were teasing him on your farewell service in July. Um, I think uh, Jen's last slide was something about, we wish you the very best, or something, some corny thing like that. I was in Presbytery line for dinner. I'm talking to a friend of mine, Bruce Spear, who was newly retired. He was wearing a vest like this, kind of off-white, plain. And I was wearing a sweater vest, uh, navy blue or something. And I said, I said Bruce, uh, nice vest. And he looked at me and said, I know. I said, isn't it great how they keep you warm, but they don't make you sweat too much? I love sweater vests. I said, my problem is this. I got a stack of these in my closet at home, and my wife won't let me wear them. <laughs> she, says, she says they're out of date. And whenever I see, she sees me coming out of the closet in the morning, she'll walk past me and say, how about this sweater, honey? Um, she says they're no longer in fashion. Bruce nods his head, and he, he says, um, I'm sure your wife's a lovely woman, but she's deeply mistaken. <laughs> and, and just then, uh, Russ came walking around the corner wearing a sweater vest. And Bruce and I went, Russ, like we were all old friends. And he was a little taken aback. And we were explaining this great grief we had about the joy of wearing sweater vests that no one else was wearing and they'd gone out of fashion. Russ pauses and goes, we can bring them back. And so, so, on, so on that day, we three made a pact for new ministry of bringing back the sweater vest. I hate to say it has not not been successful um, to the great relief of my wife, Julie. Um, so you've heard great teaching for years from Russ, and you ought not to be afraid uh, to know that we consider ourselves in much the same boat, and there'll be differences about our theology, differences about our interpretation of scripture, differences because we have led different lives for the last decades since we've been in seminary or gotten other degrees. This morning, a little telling you about what to expect, what you've already heard, in fact, to put it into perspective. Uh, for, for years, I called myself a liberal evangelical. And right now you're thinking, isn't that an oxymoron? I want to tell you it wasn't 20 years ago or 10 years ago. What I meant was this. I've been a Presbyterian all my life, uh, typically not considered an evangelical tradition. I love the word evangelical because I want to be unapologetic about my love for Jesus Christ and my desire to tell you about him. And to talk about how he can change your life, how he can be the new Moses who can liberate you, free you in all sorts of ways. And there's an energy, there's a whole school of uh, music that I find very appealing, that has spoken to me for decades and that I've led. In addition, and you don't have to raise your hands, but I know I've got some shared spirits in here. Over the years, there seems to have been in mainline denominations, now I'm thinking Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, uh, maybe American Baptist, not Southern Baptist. Uh, what we consider, actually, they're called the old line denominations now, right? Um, a tradition of sometimes majoring in the minors. And did you have this sense that as the years went on and General Assembly made new proclamations, some of us preachers wanted to say, 
This is important mission stuff we're talking about, and it's an important new subset of ministry and a minority group we need to recognize. And could we get back to preaching Jesus Christ? Um, boy, that sometimes just distracting. And it had great political heft to it and great energy. And for some of us up front, and maybe you as well, it was reading Presbyterians today or looking at what General Assembly said or what's annoying people in the pews, and you're thinking, boy, this is difficult. Wouldn't it be great to have a little more evangelical emphasis here uh, on celebrating our faith and on, on the dancing? Um, the liberal piece, uh, really I've always meant academic literal. Really, uh, this is due because on a general shape, education broadens us. That's why we want to send our kids to school. That's why we want to send our high schoolers to mission trips. There's a liberalizing influence of studying the Bible of studying secondary texts, of being through seminary, let alone getting my doctorate, getting more degrees, it makes you see more broadly and that tends to go with a liberal influence theologically. This might be, might be news to some of you, I'll go ahead and point it out. If you ever see a continuum of a congregation where we fall politically, theologically, you'll find um, a span like we have at New Hope. And then what you find, I've done studies on this, is on the left end of that span, you'll find elders and deacons. <laughs> uh, they spend a little more time, I assume this is why, talking about ministry, having to put in perspective, into context, their affirmations. Um, to the left of them a little bit, you'll find the pastor. Now, that's counterintuitive. I think a lot of us suppose that you send your college students to seminary hoping that they'll come back out feeling more deeply, knowing more deeply, but just kind of more certain of what they already knew. <laughs> and I got to tell you, for the vast majority of us, that isn't what happens. For the vast majority of us, things are blown wide open in those years. And so suddenly you recognize those heartfelt affirmations you had now are in the context of other things you've seen, loved, known, had to preach on. And then the left of the clergy are what they call specialized clergy. It's, it's as if the more of the body of Christ you see in person, different congregations, um, the more broken you get. The more you say, well, that was a weird congregation, but boy, they got some deep disciples there. I guess better broaden my sense of what's what. Um, it's not an easy path. Uh, these are the paragraphs that keep me up at night so Denver Seminary Denver Theological Seminary is a well-known seminary in our country especially in the Midwest Intermountain it's the seminary for evangelicals and five years ago they dropped the word evangelical from their name and this was instructive for me uh, because what they said was we don't get to define what words mean <laughs> isn't that a shame uh, we struggle for words to describe what we're about and who we are and what they said and what I realized was so true is for better and for worse, evangelical has not come to mean merely Christ-centered, but it's come to mean suspicion of education. It's come to mean a very narrow reading of scripture not informed by the last, I would say, century of academia. It's come to mean for better and for worse, uh, an anti-intellectual bias that hurts because I love evangelicals 
and I've counted myself among them for years and now I no longer do. I bring this all up um, because I want you to know where I'm coming from. But as I was mentioning at the session yesterday, the reason I want you to know where I'm where you're coming from. Here's a camp song to finish. <laughs> Someone taught this to me when I was in junior high and I taught it to others when I was in high school and college and it comes from the core of our tradition. Um, so I just offer it up to you. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and rider thrown into the sea. I think of this, one version has the horse and rider fell into the sea, which is a big difference. <laughs> Speaking of agency and God and suffering, but here's the way I was thrown. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. And then this affirmation of Miriam's that we'll let Moses take credit for too, because we're nice. The Lord's my God, my strength and song. Now he is my victory. The Lord's my God, my strength and song. Now he is my victory. Thank you for listening to Voices of Hope. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. Go in peace and have a wonderful week.